How many of you have ever heard the term, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree? Okay, have you ever heard it said nicely about somebody? It's pretty much a pejorative term, right? It, it means something bad's going on in that life. That, no, well, that's the family tree line. Well, what, happen, what would be, be like if, if the apple of the Christian didn't fall very far from God's tree? See, wouldn't that be a mark that would be worth saying? So I want to try to convert a term this morning because in our text, there is two marks specifically of, of uh, what's going on. One is the, there's a group that take the mark of the beast and then there's another that have the mark of God on them. So let me read, read you this thing just as we get in here. This is something that I've marked out here this morning from a commentary. Often we ask the question of you to become disciples of Christ. Have you ever heard that terminology, you need to become a disciple? This commentator says it this way. This text brings it to, to mind. The question is not actually, will I be a disciple? Every human being on the face of the globe is a disciple of someone or some ideology. So the question is never, will I be a disciple? The question is always, whose disciple will I be? The question is never, will I be influenced by the Spirit? The question is always, of all the spirits at work in the world, to which spirit will I yield? So never is the question will, or the question is never will I have values of a kingdom. The question is of all the competing kingdoms for my allegiance, whose kingdom values will I will I value? Will, the question is never will I see uh, use a set of glasses to look at the world. The question is whose glasses will I wear? So the question isn't, will I be a disciple? The question is, whose disciple will I be? Let's go to the reading. Um, I know the text in the, in the uh, you're noticing some changes in the bulletin this morning. Some of that is because um, our, our uh, liturgist was going to read a little bit of the, of the Revelation text. Instead, she read Psalm 2. Thank you for being moldable and bendable to that. Psalm 2, if you're ever wondering, is the single most quoted piece of Scripture in the New Testament. So if you want to start to hear echoes of the old and the new, go put Psalm 2 to memory, and then when you read it, you'll see it all over the place. It's also in this text. But this is starting in Revelation 14. I saw, it took my breath away. This is from the message. The earth... The, the lamb standing on Mount Zion, one hundred and forty thousand, forty-four thousand standing there with him. His name, the name of the Father, inscribed on their foreheads. And I heard a voice out of heaven, the sound like a cataract, a, the crash of thunder. And then I heard music, harp music. And the harps, music of the harpist singing a new song before the throne of the four animals and the elders. Only one hundred 
and 44,000 could learn to sing the song. They were brought from earth, bought from earth, lived without compromise, virgin fresh before God. Whoever, wherever the lamb went, they followed. They were bought from humankind, first fruits of the harvest of God, and the lamb, not a false word in their mouth, a perfect offering. And I saw something like an angel soaring, saw another angel soaring in the heavens, and he had an eternal message to preach to all on the earth, every nation and every tribe, every tongue and people. He preached with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. His hour of judgment has come. Worship the maker of heaven and earth, salt, sea, and fresh water too. A second angel followed, calling out, ruined, ruined great Babylon, ruined. She made the nations drink from the wine of her whoring. That is the language there. I just want you to understand. We'll talk about that. The third angel followed, shouting, warning, if anyone worships the beast and its image and takes the mark on, its, on their forehead or on their hand, that person will drink the wine of God's wrath prepared unmixed in a chalice of anger and suffer torment from the smoke, and their torment will rise from age to age. No respite for those who worship the image of the beast and take the mark of its name. Meanwhile, the saints stand passionately patient, keeping God's commands, staying faithful to Jesus. Okay, so we have these two marks. The two marks, I just need you to make sure that you know that when we talk about the mark of the beast or the mark of the father, they're talking about marks on our foreheads. Okay, the image is an Old Testament image from Exodus or Deuteronomy, where they they had this fancy term called phylacteries. And what they meant in the phylacteries was they would put some scripture on a piece of paper and they would have a little box that they could put the scripture on there and they would tie it on their forehead like that. Now, I want you to make sure that you know this, that I'm not commanding you to go out and buy all the Christian gear that you can and, and just wear it. Okay, now I wear a lot of shirts for different reasons. Some of you have seen those shirts, and, and I have one right now that's starting a lot of conversations around town wherever I go. I kind of do that because I'm willing to have that conversation and talk. The one I like the most right now is don't make me use my pastor voice. And that starts a lot of conversations around town. But I have another one called Rethink Church, and that one has started a lot of conversations as we talk about that. But, but I'm not saying it's not the shirt that's important, and it's not the hat, and it's not the little phylactery. It's not any of that. It's the change of life that is symbolized by putting the Word of God into your head. Okay? I want to continue to say that, that the mark of the mark on the foreheads is really a life change. It's not an outward sign. It's an inward change that is now visible. I need to make sure you know that because you end up looking pretty goofy walking around if you had a little box on your forehead and you had put tassels on the end. Well, you'd fit right in with the 70s or the 60s, right? 
Well, anyway, kind of goofy nowadays in, in the way if you just followed all those things. But if you put the mark of the Father on your forehead, then what you've done is you put the Scripture into your life, and it, and it creates these things. Are you ready? It creates seven marks, seven ways that the life of God is marked on his people. And I'm going to go through those seven today, and we're going to talk about them because they, they come right here in a nice list, right here in this thing, okay? But I need to talk about two things, make sure that you're all hearing me just clearly. Zion, the lamb standing on Mount Zion. Now, who's the lamb? Jesus. How do we know that? Give me the Sunday school answer. It's okay. The Bible tells me so. (laughs) The book of Revelation continually says that there's a lamb on the throne. The lamb is Jesus. It directly equates that. If you want to check that for sure, go back to Revelation 4 and 5, and it'll, it'll line that out really clear for you. The lamb standing on Mount Zion. Mount Zion in this case, is not necessarily a specific mountain in the land of Israel. It has become, by this time, a symbol for the land and the kingdom of God. On Zion, he will be king. It does this all over the place. I just want to go through this and sort of explain this. 144,000. We've talked about this I even brought out my tool chest, and we talked about numbers being really symbolic here. Twelve tribes of Israel times twelve disciples equals 144. How do you add a zero by multiplying in math? How do you make something bigger? Anybody? You times it by 10. I heard that. Yes. You times it by 10. So if you times something by 10, you get bigger, right? And if you times it by 10 by 10, you get way bigger. Yes? If you times 10 by 10 by 10 in the way that the Hebrews do this thing, the three multiplication thing, and you do this, it's the biggest group, the kingdom of God. This is not a statistic. I I really want to make sure that you understand that when we make symbols, statistics, it's really dangerous, right? This is, you're not going to see the book of Revelation read like news events on, on, your, on your Tuesday evening news programs. Just need to make sure we continue to know that. They're standing with him in his name, and the name of the Father is inscribed on their forehead. And, a, and I write, not the phylacteries, it's inscribed on the forehead. But is God always about outward signs? No, he's always about inward changes that then show up outward. Even though it says, write, write scripture and bind it on your foreheads, it wasn't the binding on the forehead that made them the people of God. It was the obedience to the word that was bound on their foreheads. And then there was a voice from heaven, a crash of thunder. Is, it, is there any other places in the Bible where you've heard voices from heaven come down? Is there any of them that sound like rushing waves that do that? Does anybody know any locations of anything like that? Like, like maybe Jesus' baptism. Right? 
He comes up out of the water, the dove comes down, and there's a voice like trumpets, and it says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. By the way, does that sound a little bit like Psalm 2 that, that Debbie read earlier? This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. There's another place back in Matthew 17.5 where Jesus takes a couple of his disciples up to the mountaintop, and, and they're praying, and suddenly Jesus is in conversation with two people who just kind of show up. And it says it's Moses and Elijah have showed up, and Jesus is talking, and they're doing this thing, and Peter opens his mouth. Just be always aware that when Peter opens his mouth, something's going to come out that would have been what we were thinking but wasn't necessary and was probably wrong. It's okay. The Bible includes a spot for us right there that we could say that. And he says, isn't it great that we're here, Jesus? We could build little tabernacles. I know it says shelters in most of our modern translations. Tabernacles. I I could build a little shrine for Moses and one for Elijah and one for Jesus. And out of that comes a voice from heaven that says, right? This is my son. You listen to him. And the other two are gone. Or on the road to Damascus in Acts, Paul, Paul's having a hard time kicking against the goads. He thinks his job is to be the persecutor for the church. You, none of you have ever met anybody that thought it was their job to go around and make sure everybody else in the church did it their way. You've never met that person before, have you? Okay, so anyway, Paul's doing this, and he sees this he, a flash of light and roaring thunder, and, and a voice comes out of it and it says, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you? I'm Jesus. Okay, so there's this voice of thunder, right? You, you all get that, right? And then I heard music, a harp music, and the harpist playing a song that only the 144,000, we're going to get rid of, we're going to save that for later, okay? I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm I'm saving my, my keynote address here for the end here. The thousand that only they could sing, they were bought from earth. That is the first mark of what it means to have the mark of Jesus on your life. You know you were bought at a price. Do I, I, I keep going into this. In, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, I've got that marked here. I'm kind of juggling Bibles because I, I, I had so many today, that so many verses that I had to call out. 6, 19, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit inside you, which you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. The very first mark of those who love God, who are standing there triumphant at the end, are they know they were bought at, the, bought at a price. What does it mean to know that you're bought your price? You're not your own. Somebody else took care of you. Now, as a Christian... I just want to make sure that you understand that that means somewhere along the line you had to come to the realization that you couldn't fix it yourself and that you needed help. That's all it means. Okay? Sex, the, the second thing here, they said they live without compromise 
the verses right after this, they were bought from earth and lived without compromise. They lived without compromise. This is from Romans 12. I'm just juggling a couple Bibles here. 12.1. I appeal you to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What's that mean to us? Well, the very first thing it means to us is, is this example that, that so many people that I meet live by. They compromise their living for God by living for God on Sunday, but kind of ignoring him the other six days. Say, well, that's God's day. It's as though they're in line at the cafeteria and they have one of those divided plates and all the food goes in each area, which I'm told is not a sin. Okay, In the first service, when I said something about whether or not food touching each other was bad, somebody said, it's not a problem. (laughs) But how many of you know the divided plate idea for your life? Have you seen somebody, they go, well, that's Sunday, that's God's day, but they live the rest of the week like nothing has changed in their life. They live without compromise in this area. They don't go, oh, well, you know, this is my business life and that's my Jesus life. Your business life and your Jesus life are your life. Whose disciple will you be? How much time will you spend? I keep doing this. I want to make sure you hear this. There's seven marks. What's the first one? You were bought with a price and you know it. The second one is you live without compromise. You don't compartmentalize your life into Jesus parts and non-Jesus parts. The third one is, this is it. Here, last week we had the difficult text of the number of the beast, and this, one, this time we have this one. Are you ready? Virgin fresh before God. What is this text saying? Is it saying specifically that only virgins, only people that have never had sex are actually going to be in this 144,000? No, this is not a statistical thing going on here. I want to make sure that there's three ways that the church historically has handled this number and this text. Okay, I just need to say this outright so you can hear this. The first one is, and there's, there's lots of people, okay, there's examples. So Jerome, St. Jerome, who wrote the Latin Vulgate, who translated from the Hebrew and Greek into Latin, he believed this one, okay, and actually remained celibate. John is not, is John saying that the only way to make it to the kingdom of God is through celibacy? Some Christian groups have taken this text to mean that and lived it, living a life of celibacy. You know, most of those groups are gone now. Well, there's a reason. (laughs) You know, Jerome, Jerome believed this, and, and he had a wife, but they lived together celibate for the rest of their lives. They called it lovebirds in that, in that second and third, fourth centuries time. Well, they did that. Some Christian sects did this in um, 
the early 18th century and early 19th century. In America, even, there were groups that came together. Some of them were called Shakers. You know, the Shakers are gone. Mostly. I mean, there's people that build furniture like them, but it's not really the Shakers because they did this, okay? The problem with this is, and I'm reading from a commentator, commentary. The problem with this is the option doesn't square with the remainder of the New Testament and Jesus' teaching on sexuality and, the, and his affirmation and, and celebration of marriage. So, so I just want to make sure that there's another option. And you see it in the Old Testament. It's done this way, that, that we're a group at war and warriors are to remain celibate during the war. And the example of that is David and Uriah. So some of you know this is David and Bathsheba and her husband, Uriah. That Uriah was off at war and David saw, his, saw Uriah's wife on the rooftop and thought, I'm the only guy in town. Well, most of the time, the kings were off at war with the men they were supposed to. So what was he doing at home? And he brought Uriah back from the battle, but Uriah said, how can I go into my wife when all the other warriors are not doing that? And so David didn't get his covering or his excuse, his human solution to his own infidelity, which would have been Uriah sleeping with his wife. And then if there's a baby, it's like, oh, you know, I, I realized that it, was, that it was only an eight-month thing, but it's all right. We, you know, that does happen so, sometimes. The problem with this option is this. The 144,000 in Revelation 7 are not presented as an army but as the whole people of God, they're women and men together. Okay? The third option is this. Jesus, or John, is speaking metaphorically. Sexual intimacy is used throughout the Old Testament as an analogy for God and his betrothed lover, Israel. Serving other gods in this way is called idolatry or harlotry. Option three, this option says that John is anticipating what he will do in chapters 17 and 19 with Babylon, the great, and drinking the wine of her adulterers, but also setting us up for the end of the book, Revelation 21, the coming of the bride of the lamb and the bridegroom. So in the text, in the context of the, of the book we're actually reading, I'm telling you this. Virgin fresh before God doesn't mean celibate. It means that you've not worshipped idols and kept yourself from them and you've kept yourself pure to God's way. But maybe it hasn't always been that way in your life. How many of you have a time in your life when you were not a Christian? Oh, come on. Okay. There's a, there's a vast number of people that are not paying enough attention to raise their hands to what I actually said. Because <laughs> it's not actually possible to be born a Christian. Okay? So all of you have a time in your life when you were not a Christian. You might still be having it. I don't know. But 
It's also not mine to judge. But this, that when you were not a Christian, you might have worshipped, but you were bought at a price, and then you kept yourself pure once you were clean. You didn't worship or seek out idols and do all that. That's what this is, this, the, third, the second or the third mark. I've completely lost my space. Am I on the third one? Okay. You are engaged to God. That's the third mark. So the first mark is you're bought at a price. The second mark is that you live without compromise. The third mark is you're engaged. That's not just the same as knowing you're a Christian. If you're married now, when you first got engaged, did you start then dating other people? No, you stopped dating other people. You stopped looking for the one because anybody that's been through marriage counseling with, with me will now know if you're finding somebody and you're engaged and you're getting married, that's the one. And if you spend the rest of your life making them the one, you'll never have to wonder who the one is because you'll have made the choice a thousand, two thousand, three thousand times. But you're engaged to Jesus. Where's the language about this? Jeremiah 2 has some of it. Hosea has a bunch of it in chapter 2. And you can just read Ezekiel 23 if you want some homework and you want to know about what we're like as a people to be God's bride. But when, what's the effect of being engaged to God? Well, engaged people are silly in love, aren't they? If you're not silly in love and you're engaged, then you've got a problem. I actually believe this. So, so I do premarital counseling, and at one church, I talked them into this thing that they, we charged $50. I don't know if it's the best way. It's the way we did it. We charged $50. We gave them a book, and they had six sessions. The sixth session was a year after the wedding when they were about ready for some help. If they came to all six of them, they got their 50 bucks back. Now, we don't do that here. We, I, I, I meet with some as many as six times. But what I have basically found is this. When you're silly in love, you don't think you need any help. But you're silly in love, silly in love. The, the, the third mark of being one of God's people is you're silly in love with God. First mark, you're bought from the earth at a price. The second mark, you live without compromise. The third one, you're engaged to the lamb. You're silly in love. Number four, let's read it. Wherever the lamb went, they followed. The fourth mark is you're a follower. You follow the leader. The leader is Jesus. The whole church, as far as I can tell, is looking for a leader. If you go to a Christian Bible bookstore, then about half of the books on Christian leadership are right there. It just makes me the most angry. I, I could just stand there and say, how about some books on being a follower? We've got a strong leader. His name is Jesus. You don't need me in between him and you going, what about them, Jesus? Remember, you did stuff for them. 
oh, do you? No, you have a direct connection to him, and you follow. But one of the cool blessings of the ancient world, when you had a rabbi, and you were one of the followers of the rabbi, which meant you were on the way to becoming a rabbi, and they would bless you, and they would say this, may the dust of your rabbi be upon you. Do you know what that means in a dusty country where where everything is walking around? That you're not in front of the rabbi. You're behind him on the dusty trail, and he kicks up dust, and you're walking along. That means you're everywhere he's going but two steps behind in the dust. The fourth mark of this is that everywhere they go, everywhere Jesus goes, they go. And the scripture I've got here is from 1 John 5. 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from him, and we proclaim to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we don't live according to the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. Everywhere they go, everywhere he goes, his people go. They just follow him. The first mark, right? The first mark is bought at a price. They live without compromises. Number two, you're silly in love, which means you follow him everywhere. Number five, they were bought from humankind, first fruits of the harvest of God and the Lamb. What is a first fruits thing? That is a weird Bible term, if there ever was one. Some of us call it a tithe or something like that, but a tithe isn't just 10%. Of course, if you get the money, if you're in money and you say, well, 2,000 came in and 200 goes to church, and it doesn't really matter which 200 it is because money's money, money, money's money. But the reason you tithe in general and you bring the whole tithe in is because you're essentially saying not that that 200 belongs to God, Here's the ticket to understanding giving to God. When you give to God, you're not saying the 200 belongs to God. You're saying the 2,000 belongs to God, and the first 200 of it goes directly to him, and he's, and you're acknowledging that it all belongs to him. Now, in the ancient world, and if we do this in, in uh, Malachi, or as sometimes I would refer to it, in Malachi, the Italian prophet, the last one. How many of you have read Malachi bunches of times? I, I saw a hand back there. Well, it's, it's also one of the very quoted ver- chapters. Malachi chapter 3 is quoted all over. Behold, behold, I send my messenger to prepare the way before me. Have you ever heard that language before? It starts from the gospel. That's Malachi chapter 3. But we're a little farther down. Verse 8, For I am the Lord, and I don't change. Therefore, sons of Jacob, are you not consumed? From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But will you say, how shall we return? Will, Will man rob God? Yet God says, you are robbing me. But you say, how are we robbing you? 
in your tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse of God. It's like this. In the ancient world, if, if part of the tithe was, let's say you had 100 sheep and part of 100 lambs and 10 lambs were your tithe that year because you didn't really have money, you had lambs. And you said, well, you know, as I look at my 100 lambs, these 90 are pretty healthy and these 10 are really sick. I'm given the 10 sick ones. That's what they were doing. But a first fruit would say the other way. God says, as we continue in this, test me in this, says the Lord. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down an overflowing blessing. This is not health and wealth gospel. This, by the way, is full recognition That's what first fruits means. Full recognition that it all belongs to God. All of it. There's this joke about um, Jesus and some other people and the scientists are making new things and, and and they come to Jesus and they show him all this new stuff they've created and he goes, that's great. Get your own atoms. They're all his. Without the atoms, we don't make anything. It's all his. But what does it mean to be a first fruit of humankind? Now that puts a little exponent on the understanding, doesn't it? Did you know that the first fruit was a sign that you knew that everybody belonged to God? This is an example of what Jesus said when he's going, they're saying, should, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus says, well, whose picture's on the coin? And they say Caesar's. And he says, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. Well, whose image is in every single human on earth? God's. And the first fruits are the people that have come to faith. That means you're a sign that all of humanity belongs to him. Now, the people of God is not as many as the whole humanity of God because some have said, no, we don't want any part of that. Haven't they? But some haven't. But who are the whole people of God, past and future and still to come and right now? Well, they're all those who have believed and all those who will. And so you need to treat them all as part of the image of God. But you're also here as a first fruit, as a sign that God is in charge. Okay, here we are. We're, we're, uh, Dave is trying really hard to not be super long-winded again, and it's failed. The sixth sign, not a false word is in their mouths. I want to say this. This is not, they don't lie. They're not pretending to be Christian. They're not pretending to do this. They actually tell the truth. It doesn't mean that your whole job is to go out there to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help me God, I'm going to make sure that your day is as bad as it possibly can. I see six things in your life that I think I need to tell you about. There's no grace in that. 
But you can tell them that God loves them. They don't lie about that. They don't, they don't, they don't sneer in their face and say, well, God doesn't really love those people because they don't measure up to what I want. Okay. In this case, blameless in some Bibles, they're blameless in the way they stand. Blameless doesn't mean perfect. Do you know why I know that? Because you had to recognize you weren't perfect to be bought at a price. Everything is in context here, right? You were bought at a price because you knew you couldn't do it. You'd made mistakes that you couldn't correct. Well, now you're blameless because you've been clean. doesn't mean perfect. It means who you are. You know who you are in Christ. Last sign. Are you ready? This is it. It's at the end of chapter, it's at the end, of, at the very beginning of the next chapter, we go in there, I saw another sign in heaven, huge and breathtaking, seven angels with seven disasters, these are the final disasters, the wrap-up of God's wrath. I saw something like a sea made of glass, you can look at this sea if you want in, in Revelation 4, the glass was all shot through with fire carrying harps of God, triumphant over the beast, its image, and the number of its name, the saved ones stood on the sea of glass. They sang the song of Moses, servant of God. They sang the song of the Lamb. Mighty your acts, and marvelous, O God, the sovereign strong. Righteous are your ways and true. King of the nations, this is a song. Who can fear, who can fail to fear you, God? Give glory to your name, because you and you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship you, because you see that judgments are right. By the way, that's the song. If you look at the song in your Revelation and the song in Exodus, or right after the Pharaoh is drowned in the sea, that is the bulk of that song, the song of Moses. We sing and worship. That's the last sign. May the apple not fall very far from the tree, as you have been born and are now children of the Father of heaven. 